0: This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend Sean Lake. Co founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So, I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter. That has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Now, Dukes is both a world record holder and world champion in both skydiving and base jumping, as well as a revered instructor. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood in Australia, his journey into skydiving, living in Switzerland, the importance of fitness, training diligence, the human performance project, and so much more. Before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 600 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Dougs. Enjoy. dukes i want to start by saying thank you so much for literally dropping everything and coming on the behind the shield podcast today
1: yeah no worries a pleasure to be here that's for sure
0: so where on planet earth are we finding you right now and and specifically who's home
1: so right now i'm in dallas texas uh just flew in from peru a couple of days ago and i'm with uh ryan birdman parrot and uh we're getting a lot of testing done ready for this human performance project so it's been a pretty cool couple of days so far
0: Brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to kind of hearing about you know that element that, that you're getting involved with from that side. Um, obviously, from your accent, you're not a Dallas native, so I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Yeah. So I uh, came from a very shitty suburb in uh, the southeast suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, uh, born in 1976, so the late 1900s. Um, I have three sisters and I had two pretty awesome parents. So I grew up in a pretty cool family life, but there's definitely um, not much money. You know, we grew up very simply and stuff, but I had loving parents. Um, My dad worked hard to keep the house over our heads and keep us in school and stuff like that. Um, But he was a a great dad and we used to go camping a lot. Every, you know, every three months we'd be in the bush and he'd talk me through all the mountain stuff and how to survive and Boy Scouts and all that. and Basically... Used to just love jumping off the roof and climbing in trees and getting into trouble. And um, I started skateboarding at eleven years old and fell in love with the freedom of doing what you want. And I fell in love with being able to. The harder you train, the more reward you get. So, and you don't have to listen to what anyone tells you. You don't have to kick a ball into a goal. You can you can have the freedom of expression. So I fell in love with that without even knowing. It was only later on in life where I realized how special that was. And then started surfing at fifteen. Um, and Dad would drop me down to the beach and you know, just doing everything by myself. It was always I never did anything the right way. I just did whatever I wanted and learned always the hard way. But um, and then I think I was about seventeen, I started snowboarding. Um, and all the way through, I was listening to punk rock and fell in love with music. and And then, at twenty years old, um, went to just do one skydive and uh, tick it off the list and say how rad I was, and uh, did that one skydive and just it blew me away. And like literally, Blew me away, you know, and I, I, that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And then 25 years later, here we are.
0: Here we are indeed. So with your parents, what were they actually doing as far as profession?
1: Yeah, so mum was a stay-at-home mum. She raised four kids um, and she had a lot of anxiety. And uh, she, she wasn't a psycho because she was an awesome mum, <laughs> but trying to, trying to raise us four kids, you know, and that stuff I just identified in Peru in this this Ayahuasca retreat because I didn't realize the, the guys are like, why do you base jump? What led you to base jumping? And it was actually, it, we narrowed it back to the fact that mum used to tie me into the bed and tie me to the shopping trolley and have me on a dog, like it was a human leash, but as a dog leash and tie me to the clothesline, and hang me off the clothesline. So I couldn't get away and do stuff. And that, and used to ground me for a month at a time. So, so it must have been hard work. <laughs> but um, in the end, we worked out that that's probably the reason why I've gone to, to that. Extent of freedom, yeah. And then Dad worked in the uh, cool room industry. He was like the king of the cool room industry. So building big freezers um, for for like abattoirs and sh- and um, like shopping centres and, and stuff like that. So and he actually is a Vietnam vet. So he fought fought in the war back then. Um, and yeah, he had a, a tough time. He said it was the best and worst time of his life. So he didn't join up by choice. He was conscripted. Um, so growing up, there was when there was financial hardships in in Australia, and so, you know, nineteen percent interest rates and stuff like that. So dad had to work six, seven days a week just to keep a, a roof over our heads. And basically, he also got me into a good work ethic from eleven years old. I started working at eleven because I wanted the cool skateboard and I wanted the cool skateboard shorts. And mum and dad just literally couldn't afford to give me anything cool. So anything I wanted I had to earn so from the age of 11 every school holidays was spent working and it was literally just sweeping up and hanging out with dad and then slowly I know how to build cool rooms and, and things like this and, and and got a really good work ethic really young which I'm very very grateful for and you know my dad was my best mate and so after hours we'd always go camping and do stuff and yeah it was really cool and, and he also got me into appreciating life and and um, just living in the outdoors and stuff like that, which I took to another level, obviously. Um, but, but a really, really good upbringing, uh, simple upbringing. You know, we'd go on a, a picnic and he'd just throw a rope over a tree and put a couple of bricks in a hot plate. And that was our barbecue. And we'd have sausages and bread and swing off trees. And that was our holidays, you know, and stuff like that. So very simple and, and very grateful looking back on it all.
0: Beautiful. Now, you don't really hear much about the Australian involvement in Vietnam, but obviously it was, you know, there were, there were many allied nations that were in there as well. Um, you know, that in the States was a very, very kind of, I think, a dark, um, chapter in military history. And our men and women were treated very, very poorly, you know, when they returned. And I think they're, they're suffering to this day. What, if anything, does your dad kind of recall about that whole experience
1: himself? Yeah, very, very much so. So, you know, I had a, such a great relationship with my dad. and I actually took him back to Vietnam after mum passed away and took him on a holiday to everywhere he fought and stuff. And um, it was really, I got more emotional than him about the whole thing. So it was a really interesting journey that we went on together. And uh, he took it all in his stride, but he remembers when he, he said it was basically the best and worst time of his life, all in one. Um, and he, he came back and he was treated like shit by the Australian people. Um, because of the, the way the media portrayed the Vietnam War and the way the Vietnam War was, you know, and obviously by the Australian government as well, which is very similar to you guys. And, and basically he ended up getting into trouble. You know, he beat up a few coppers and stuff um, and, he, you know, people would spit on him walking down the street, so he'd just deck him. Apparently he's a really good fighter, so <laughs> a good Aussie lad, you know. just to, and, um, and so he, he said it was terrible, but eventually because he grew up in a small town... He had to leave that town and get away from the trouble because he, he made a decision for himself to get himself out of the hole and try to turn his life around, which he did. But a lot of his um, friends killed themselves. A lot went to jail or got in trouble because I was just treated like shit when they get home. And, and it makes me sad being like I'm in America now and you you, you watch how the, the vets are treated. You know, they go into the army or the military like, yeah, it's going to be the best thing ever and this and that. And then when they get out, they're just left to rot. And it, it does make me very, very sad to see. Um, and the Australian Australian Vietnam vets were exactly the same. But he also doesn't regret going over. As he said, he's the best and worst time of his life. But um, he learned he learned a lot and and it made him who he was in the end as well. But it wasn't their war, you know. It wasn't. And it was good when we went over. He was speaking with um, the Viet Cong and stuff and they would sit down, have a chat and talk about old, the old times of how it was back then. And that was really interesting to see that, like, human beings are just human beings, you know. They're just – but they're – the vets are, uh, are puppets in a bigger game, a stupid game. Um, so I ended up writing a book for him just as a thank you one day. So I did a long, long interview with him and then turned it into a book of his life, a uh, little did he know. So, yeah, so it's called My Hero, My Friend, My Dad. It was a great, great uh, memory memory for him because he, he passed away in 2016 of cancer. Um, so and he was my best mate, so I was still probably recovering from that. Because he loved the base jumping and loved the skydiving, and used to I used to take him on holidays with us, and he'd be have all the wingsuiters flying over him and buzzing. And he's, he's a good lad, you know. So
0: <laughs> beautiful. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's such an important perspective, and we don't hear these stories, you know. And I think, mm-hmm. especially with the visiting Vietnam and realizing that you were both just just people. I had a, a guest, Rich Rice, who was. Um, delta in vietnam and he went back very recently with the Gorak guys and had a very similar experience where he interacted with you know people that were once his enemies i mean it's just crazy
1: yeah you, i mean the thing is you see it now with the ukraine and russia it's just so sad to see we're in 2022 you know and that's where i i feel that if if every person on this planet could just take one drop of acid or do one ayahuasca retreat or do one psilocybin event you know the 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 buildings we painted rainbows and everyone would be happy (laughs) and it's just (laughs) sad to see how amazing we could have this planet and yet everyone's focused on on money and gains and power and it's there's just no reason for it in this day and age you know we've gone through this for hundreds if not thousands of years and there's no reason why we can't all work together and live together and be harmonious you know
0: absolutely now total random question do you have any um like uh hereditary roots in the aboriginal side
1: no, so I someone stole something at some point and got a free trip to Australia from Scotland or the UK. I'd say because my last name's McDougal, so so <laughs> so I'm uh, I, there's some sort of German background on my mother's side, and on my father's side, my grandma's Italian, so and my grandfather was Australian with a Scottish last name, so. My history actually comes from the Dolomites um, in Italy, which has come full circle because I actually go jumping there now. So, yeah, so she came out on a boat when she was five years old um, and then naturalised and then that's that. So for me, no Aboriginal heritage. Um, but, again, that's another that's another thing. It's the Aborigines get treated so poorly by the Australian government and by the Australian people. When We were never taught one thing about this uh, Aboriginal culture in school. Not one. Um, we we're just told they were drunks and they were worthless, and it's it's very very sad. That as you grow up and you realise, and you travel up to, you know, Arnhem Land and, and stuff like that, and you see, it's just, it's a shame. It's obviously the same for the Native American American Indians as well, and all Native tribes. Just being in Peru recently and talking about the history of them when the Spanish come over and ruin their lives, and they're trying to maintain their culture now of living in the forests and and stuff like that. And so yeah, all Native people, it's like have just had terrible things done to them over the years.
0: Absolutely. Well, where you're from, Melbourne, I met some of the nicest people on planet Earth. I mean, your city is, is so warm. In fact, my girlfriend at the time and I were flying with full intentions of getting a, a taxi to the hostel that we were going to stay in. Literally, one of the air hostesses was ch- talking to us at the end of the flight. She goes, hey, I live in Melbourne. Do you guys want to ride? And we were like, What? And so, yeah, the lady that, that literally was, you know, helping us with our tea and all that stuff on the way, she, she was a younger woman and was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give you uh, guys a lift to the, to the hostel. Conversely, um, when we finally made it to Alice Springs and we went to visit Ayers Rock, just like yourself, as a, as an Englishman, I'm like, where are all the Aboriginal people? This is their, you know, their sacred land. You start learning about it, you know, on your own, cause there's no one to guide you through it who's actually from that tribe. And then it talks about you know it's it's a sacred rite of passage to climb it, and then they go, "Yeah, but don't worry about that. for twenty dollars you can climb the climb a share at this thing if you want and I'm like, we refuse to. I'm like, the, just said here this is a sacred rock for this people. Why would I wanna clamber all over it when I'm not part of this tribe? There's lots of other rocks around the world I can climb and not piss anyone off, so I found that very weird as a tourist in you know what was really the mecca of the aboriginal world, and not one single you know aboriginal man or woman or, or child there to story tell or interact with
1: yeah it, it is very sad hey it's just it's just it's a product of how the world is at the moment you know it's a quite a weird time and hopefully it transitions in the, in a good way but it's definitely um definitely a weird place everyone's in at the moment a lot of separation because of the covid and stuff too and i mean Let's not talk about your government, but uh, the people are awesome. <laughs> but the government, the, between the Australian and the American government, I mean, gosh, well, know. the
0: British too, where I'm originally from. Oh La yeah, Canal. yeah.
1: Come <laughs> your hair, son. Like, <laughs>
0: and, then, and even New Zealand. That's the thing. I thought, my goodness, this is a you know a, a country with its head screwed on tight, and they're very you know eco friendly and a healthy, healthy group of people. And then right at the very end, I don't know what the hell happened, but she took a fucking sharp left turn and it went the same damn way that our people were going. It
1: was insane. Very pear-shaped, hey? Yeah, very pear-shaped. And um, I'm super grateful that I live in Switzerland because everything runs so smoothly there, probably because I can't understand the language. But um, (laughs) I think from what I understand, there's seven people in government. And they're all in a round table and they all have to discuss and agree and then any major decision goes to the people in a referendum so the population decides as as it should be and the government is there to serve not to dictate and so it actually works and i mean the country it's expensive to live there but you get what you pay for you pay your tax for the roads the roads are awesome you pay your train ticket the trains are on time and they're clean and there's no danger whatsoever yeah it's just it just works so good everyone's paid well there's none of this american crap with adding taxes and tips and the poor waitresses and waiters get paid nothing and everyone gets minimum wage i think minimum wage is like four thousand dollars a month you know and it's just it works so well and there's no i won't say there's no crime there's very very little crime you know if you drop your wallet we always have a joke that if you lose your wallet you'll probably get it back with more money in it because (laughs) that's how good the swiss are but you you know you lose your phone it'll get handed into the station and then if you find a wallet or a phone you hand it into the station as well and it it's like, it's a a picture that society can work. It really is proof that society can work. So, yeah, so I'm very grateful. It's turned me from Australian to very punctual and formal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one thing I hear a lot about the Swiss, a, 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 a topic that I talk about in depth because as a firefighter paramedic and someone who's, you know, lived and worked in many, many countries is the impact of addiction on the well-being of nations and, My family moved to Portugal, cliff cliff notes of the story, uh, Portugal decriminalized addiction about 20 years ago and had huge success. That doesn't mean they're stocking shelves in the supermarket with crack and meth. It just means that if you're caught with a user's amount, you don't go to prison. You go and you get offered all these addiction and mental health counseling routes. I know that Switzerland actually um, legalised, you know, the, the the same kind of elements. So, what were you seeing as far as a level of addiction in the streets, the crime, that kind of thing that that maybe contrasted what you would see in the states or Australia?
1: Well, I mean, it's a tricky one in Switzerland because we live in the Alps, so we're in the mountains. So it's it's too cold for homeless people anyway. I've seen one homeless person once at Bern uh, train station or something. But he had a doona and he was super happy and his comfy mattress and stuff so it's completely contrasting to the usa um usa makes me sad when you see everyone on the streets like you, you just don't expect it. it's a first world country and they're busy policing the rest of the world and they're not even looking after their own people so it's, that's the first thing i see when i come to the us and i know it's pretty bad in san fran and, and la and stuff but in switzerland it's pretty good overall i'm sure there's pockets where where there's there's people that are sort of homeless or drug affected that's I mean the whole world has has stuff like that but it's very minor and you don't really see too much of it yeah and i think cuz in switzerland you basically everyone has to work um, everyone has a role to play and everyone has a job of some sort and so and the system is there to help people so from what i've seen is that the it just works yeah so there's people through covid um, you know the switzerland I don't know much about their political or financial system, but they have money to give the people if they're out of work and if something goes wrong. And so even throughout COVID, everyone was looked after very, very much. So I don't, you know, I'd be surprised if they're even in debt. So, I mean, there's a little bit of hypocritical stuff there from the war and stuff, I'm sure. And like, um, but overall, again, the, the country just works. They're very, for a country that everyone thinks is like rules, 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 you can actually do whatever you want there as long within the, the sort of parameters of of what is right morally um and whereas america is like freedom and it's like it's bullshit and australia is like no worries mate and it's like that says bullshit that all died like 20 years ago um so so when you think of switzerland you think of black and white rule based country and it's completely opposite i have so much freedom in switzerland i have no freedom in australia especially with the sports i do you know there's 90 different laws against base jumping in australia between criminal and civil And yet in Switzerland, I actually work with the police. I know them on a first-name basis in a good way. I work with the government. I work with the rescue services. We work together to make sure we can all take responsibility and reduce accidents um, and make everything safer for everybody. Not, Not like, oh, you can't do that. You might hurt yourself. Well, I'm an adult and I deserve the right to do what I want, you know, as long as it's not hurting anyone or anything. Um, so they treat you like adults and they treat athletes like athletes um, and they're they're very respectful in that way and they talk to you as a human being what scares me about the Australian police and and the U.S. police and I know some of the police they're great people too but you you for the most part you're not treated you're guilty until proven innocent and they use excessive force and Switzerland's just not like that it's amazing I never thought I'd say nice things about police
0: so with with that just one more thing obviously you're you're up in the alps but you're exposed obviously to to news and that kind of thing are you seeing gang violence and a lot of the kind of ripple effects that we see from you know drug prohibition basically are you seeing that in switzerland
1: again there's there's nothing there i mean even the bikies seem happy (laughs) so you know (laughs) it's a a small country too so like one one it's a small country there's only eight million people so so that for sure makes a difference but Again, the quality of life there is awesome. So no one's getting screwed. You know, the little man is not getting screwed over by the big man. Everyone's paid a wage that they can live happily on, and it just makes such a huge difference. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an expensive country as it coming in as a tourist from certain places, but the quality of life in Switzerland is incredible. And you've got the outdoors all the time. You're not stuck in crazy massive cities. You know, the cities, even the cities, have lots of parks and. Uh, quite open and a lot of nature and then you know a lot of the the country is in the mountains and stuff as well so so the quality of life the air's fresh you know we always joke around if you need a drink of water you just put your hand outside the window and the waterfall and grab a glass of water and you know the water's the water's clean the air's fresh um it it just works it just works I'm, I'm definitely definitely uh grateful to be able to live there.
0: Beautiful. Yeah I actually flew into Zurich and I think you go by Lake Zurich have I got that right Got, uh, sorry, yeah. Geneva, Lake Geneva. Um, okay, yeah. Well, there's lakes everywhere. They've got Zurich, yeah. Geneva. <laughs> yeah. So, but again, I mean, just absolutely, you know, pristine, beautiful mountains yeah. and everything. So, even though we drove through to, to France to to ski with my family there, um, you know, it just you can tell. The same with New Zealand. When I got to New Zealand, you could tell that that's a, a very clean, you know, um, environmentally conscious country as well. But obviously, not the same when it comes to the the safety side.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like Wanaka and Queenstown in New Zealand are awesome spots as well. You can get out and about. I think that's one cool thing with COVID too because everyone's locked in, but we were still able to go out into the mountains and, and social distance, as they say. But, you know, you still, you can get out. I felt so bad for the people in like Milan and in other cities that got really, really stuck indoors. And it was just bullshit because not once did, throughout the pandemic, were people talking about health, fitness, sunlight, getting amongst it, you know, it was all an, an alternative uh, remedies and alternative ways to to fight this. And it was just such bullshit. It was just a money-making scheme as far as I was concerned. Um, and for sure, some people got sick, some people died, you know, but <clears throat> most of the time it was people with underlying conditions and they're not healthy people in general. This is, I, you know, with my base school and that's there's always survival of the fittest, you know. We are in the food chain still. The human beings have forgotten that. And the weak the weak perish and the strong survive, and that's, could be any of us at some point, you know. But you've got to be proactive in all this stuff. As as far as I'm concerned, and the fact that Dunkin' Donuts or McDonald's were giving out free things if you got vaccinated, like defeated the purpose of being fit and healthy. I just I just couldn't grab my head around that. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed watching the American news, and then at one point I switched to the Australian news because it was funnier. Because <laughs> even the Americans were laughing at the Australians, and I'm like, oh my god, what's going on? You know. When
0: it's died down a bit, just switch to one of Boris's speeches and go. Okay, I'm I'm laughing oh, again now. We're good. So so, so you can't all go and party, but we're going to have a party at, at the you know Ten Downing Street. Got it. Check.
1: <laughs> it's so hypocritical for everything, you know. So and then yeah, let's not talk about <laughs> let's talk about politics. I mean, I'm watching poor buddy Joe Joe nonsense. You know, he's like poor bugger. Yeah, It's a lonely old road for him, and I, I feel bad for him as a human being. But like at the end of the day, what the fuck. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Well, with uh, that, just one more thing and I want to transition to your journey. But again, unique lens that you have. I haven't I think I've had anyone from Switzerland up to this point. Certainly not someone that's moved to Switzerland from another country. What is the overall health of that nation? And then what were they seeing as far as actual deaths during this pandemic?
1: Yeah, it's overall, I think the health's really good. Um, at least again, where I'm at, I'm in a, a bit of an Alps bubble, but like where I used to live up in and you can't get there by car. There is no cars, a car free village. Either you either get there by train or you walk. So, you know, you've got 80 plus year old people that are still fit and healthy because they're walking everywhere and you're at a little bit of altitude. And um, the food, it's interesting. You know, it's like quite a lot of cheese and potatoes, but it obviously keeps everyone alive. Um, and people just live a long and happy life. There's a lot of farming, uh, stuff like that. And the people are very unique to their own villages and they have routine. And they're, they're just going about their business and, and not much bothers them. You know, they're, they're grumpy sometimes. We call it the Swiss diss you know. It's like, oh, the sky's too blue today or the grass is too green. <laughs> you know, they got to complain about something sometimes. But, um, but overall, again, it comes back to, to quality of life. So, for sure, the numbers were going up in, um, during the peak times of corona and they went up a few times. But where, what happened with Switzerland where we are is normally there's a ton of accidents. Just in sports, just everything like between hiking, mountaineering, uh, climbing, paragliding, like every sport basically. BASE jumping, you know, we're all. I think BASE jumping is around the middle of the range with accidents. Um, But all the doctors, some of them were going on unemployment benefits and that because there's no no sports getting done, there's no nothing happening. So the hospital where we were, like in Interlaken, um, was there's nothing going on. Like it was empty, you know. So I know Bern. I think Zurich had a bit more going on, but uh, overall it was. A lot of hype in the media everywhere. A lot of bullshit, you know. And I'm not. This is the whole world, but you, what can you trust now in the media? There's so much dis- misinformation now. It's terrible. So you know, it's like what? Do, what do you listen to? I'm trying. I try and just listen to independent people now, like Breaking Points, um, and Crystal and Saga, and those guys. And John Stewart's another good one. He know, a bit of humor with that. But you, Switzerland overall was, was really good um i mean again the testing clinics you just drive straight in but the, to get your pcr test and stuff it's like 150 bucks a hit so it was it was crazy there for a bit you know i tried to do the right thing because we'd have to work in croatia so i do the right thing i paid for me and my head instructor 150 bucks each get a pcr test and they don't even check it so it's like oh fuck i'm not getting that again you know so get on the old uh, photoshop and sort it out you know, it's just <laughs> like, and then they do check it, but because the whole world's in such a cost of fuck mode that no one understands what every everyone else is doing, so it was so pointless. Yeah, and it, it did definitely segregate Switzerland. So there was like there was a referendum, and it voted just for like just in favor of the government taking over everything over the people. Um, so there was a big split, like in all all countries. Um, and it was really the sad part was to see how how fired up, even in our circles, between the, us tourists there, our slanders and the locals, of the, the division of pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine and stuff like that, and it really divided the people. That was the scariest part and I think the saddest part was that the, the powers that be were succeeding in divide and conquer uh, to a certain extent. So that was the only thing I really didn't didn't like. Um, but, again, we were able to separate for everyone. Everyone was able to do their own thing and we didn't have to mingle too much. So. We, we weren't in that, like, I was never worried about getting COVID. I was, my ex-wife and her family got COVID straight away. I was in quarantine with them the whole time, never got COVID. Um, and it wasn't until I was in Brazil that I finally got COVID. And I was pretty run down at that point as well. And I was like, I've had worse come downs than this, you know? So, so I just slept for a couple of days and everything, everything was good and it was a problem. But for sure I had some friends get quite sick, but Overall, if you're fit and healthy, everyone. I had, I've had more friends have major troubles with the vaccine than with COVID itself. So one of our friends got a pacemaker because of it. Another had a stroke. Another's been hospitalised. And there's just so much more. There's so much information not getting out there about um, the problems with the vaccine. So yeah, and again, health fitness, health fitness. You know, just like I don't understand. You know, but it's cheaper to buy a McDonald's than it is to buy a salad so it's quite quite sad there's no education out there well very little you have to really really dig deep to get right education about everything that's going on now and health and fitness but it's happening you know It is the age of information which is good so
0: absolutely well i appreciate your perspective because i mean that's what's happened this last two years um just through these conversations as i've had people from all over the world and they're reporting the same thing of course there are hot spots of course You know, where there is poorer health, there is more of a danger. But that's been my stance this whole two years. It's like, all right, well, then if we're talking about health, where's the health conversation? You've closed all the gyms. You've let fast food and alcohol be delivered to people's fucking houses. Now, I'm not seeing this health message. So, therefore, you're not concerned about health. So, this is politicized. Of course, it's real, but you're not taking this real thing and actually addressing the issue you're taking this real thing and politicizing it and using it to leverage your own agendas and it's not a political thing at all i do this podcast for free because i fucking hate people suffering and dying i wish these some of these so-called leaders had that same lens so they actually be like okay as of now we think maybe the vaccine is good but let's talk about going outside the beaches are open you know we're gonna we're gonna have you know we're going to bolster the local farmers and and help them grow more local food you know we're going to um you know put educational thing we got your cat you know captive audience now we're going to educate you on how to eat how to move you know sleep meditation all these things and 2 years later you could have an incredibly healthy nation whether they got covid or not but the we saw the polar opposite and it's one thing for me sitting here saying, "Oh, this is what's happening in my little bubble," but when I start hearing it from Australia, New Zealand, and Switzerland and France and, you know, the same conversation, it's like at least through my lens now I'm like, "Look, this is a this is happening all over the world. Some people are handling it well, some people are handling it really poorly, but overall, if you're healthy, you've got a great chance of this just being a shitty flu and if you're unhealthy it could potentially kill you so let's make people not unhealthy that should be the message assume you are going to get covid and start working towards getting healthier
1: it should always be the message i mean this is the thing and not just it shouldn't even take this to make it happen but because of our sports i'm i'm friends all over the world literally nearly every country and this the whole thing's exactly the same as you said it's just crazy i mean i i flew to hawaii and um I got food poisoning on the airline, and I was so sick when I got to Hawaii recently. And I slept for twenty two hours straight, like way, way sicker than I was with COVID. There was nothing. I've had way worse flus, um, but just you know, we're a species. We get viruses. We get things happen. Sometimes you do die. Sometimes you get sick. But you you got to build your immune system to it. And and again, it's the same with everything. Prevention. How do you how do you prevent something from happening? Well. You, you can wear this bullshit mask. Like we in Peru, we had to wear two masks. I'm like, you realise this is retarded, aren't you? He's the, the stewardess is like, yeah, I know, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, it's like, you just got to play the game, you know. It's like it doesn't work. What works is building your immune system, getting some sunlight, you know, being fit every day. And it doesn't take much to get fit or be fit, you know. It's, it's not a full-time process, but you just have to be diligent um in what you do and what you eat within reason. It's not even that hard, you know. He still had heat days and stuff like that too. So, but yeah, I like the, you know, some companies made a lot of money. <laughs> and and you look at it, everyone was kicking up. I'm full environmentalist with everything as best I can, but, you know, the straw issue in the ocean was such, such a big stink about it, you know. And now I think it was 1.6 billion mass ended up in the ocean last year, and they don't break down for over 400 years. So, What's the cost of a few thousand people dying or, you know, hundred thousand people with the underlying issues or ruining the entire planet? And and how many other people died of drug overdose, got mental health problems, suicide? Where's those figures? You know, no one's releasing them, you know? And obviously the king of the crooks, Mr. Fauci, like what's going on there? Why is he getting away with murder? you know so good on Rand Paul the senator dude or whatever he's awesome <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I just saw you know? and again I mean I'm I'm with you I hate politics but I just saw a video that I think came out like right before all this and again I just saw it on social media I mean I'm assuming it was from when they said it was how do I know I'm James Gearing I just popped up on my phone but it appeared to be Fauci talking about the flu vaccine and the person asking the question said well what if you know my wife just got the flu does she need to get the vaccine he's like no she's got the best kind of immunity well mic drop you know i mean i agree with you completely but then that science that i was taught for you know my entire medical education was completely turned on its head but but anyway you know i did i think what's empowering is hearing stories like yours so that we can formulate our own idea and that like i said you know for you even, even for example, witnessing these Swiss men and women, you can have potato and cheese if you're out in the sun all day and there's no cars and you're having to walk everywhere. You're probably healthy as a horse because it's not processed shit. It's not, you know, high fructose corn syrup. It's, you know, it's local food. I'm sure the quality of the cheese is amazing in the, the Swiss Alps.
1: Yeah. And, keep, you know, keep active. That's the key. So I just finished reading a book called Ikigai, and it's about the longest living Japanese people. And, um, and it's like one of the biggest rules were like eat a balanced diet, but eat anything you want, you know, but natural foods and keep moving and have a bit of a routine and find something you're passionate about too. I think that's a big one. There's a lot of people are put in a position now where they're just struggling to survive in the first world. You know, there's, they're struggling to survive as in like Africa, but there's also struggling to survive in like say America. And it's a different struggle, but it's essentially the same thing. And so they're put in a position where they, they, forced to pretty much eat junk food or, or they've been programmed through the TV and through the internet, that, you know, Mountain Dew, Mountain Dew or, you know, not to name sugar brands, but, you know, Coca-Cola and McDonald's Mountain Dew, things like this. It's, just a, it's fucking terrible for you and yet it's the most publicised stuff and, man, it's just like who's promoting all the good stuff, you know? No one really. Just, in, again, independence. You know, because the Coca-Cola has the money to overrule everything, the lobby and everything. And you know, Bill Gates—what does he own? All the potatoes for McDonald's or something like that, as well. Like he's the biggest potato grower for McDonald's. And it's all this stuff, and obviously Monsanto and all this stuff. It's just terrible, you know. So it's it's really really tough. So hopefully, more and more people can um, you know go to local farmers' markets and do their bit and just just eat produce. I was I was taught things a while ago, but basically never buy anything from a shopping from a supermarket in the middle always buy from the outside because your fresh produce is always around the outside and don't buy anything that was um made after 1960 <laughs> 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 so so if, if there's any products that were invented after about the 1960s then they're probably bad for you yeah
0: yeah so i always say if you want if you want to reverse 90% of your health problems eat like your great grandparents did that's a great start yeah. and move like your great grandparents did
1: Boom. Exactly, you know yeah. what I
0: mean, and then take the technology that we have got, the advances, and add that in that ten percent, and you will have a better, healthier, longer life. But you know, if you, yeah, we we've, we've just, I think that's so much of this has been kind of reverse engineering, like deconstructing all the damage that's been done, finding that nucleus, and then growing forward again. I mean, so many yeah. of us, even like posture, like you and I are sitting down now. What that's doing to us you know for hours at a time you know even in my profession the fire service we sit a lot we do we sit in the vehicles we sit to write reports we sit for online training um and you know even that the damage is done there's so much that modern society has done that's great but there's so much that it's done that's made us sicker and mentally less sound
1: yes and i'm just learning about all that stuff now because it's like i have such a good life and yet i was going downhill pretty much and I had to go back to the root problems of what's going on. It's all this like fight or flight modes and and dopamine fixes and just little things. And then the more your body gets into negativity, the more negativity it craves and the more quick fix dopamine it craves and then can lead to all sorts of addictions. Um, And then it's about breaking that habit on a conscious and subconscious level um, and starting good habits and and making that effort. But it takes effort. And it's the way society is built now. It's like you're fighting an uphill battle, especially – you know, watch the poor kids now with the, they're just stuck on their iPhone or their iPad and, you know, not getting out and amongst it, but everything's directed to that style of living. And it's quite sad to see, you know, just go and grab a stick and go out and hit a tree, you know, or <laughs> hit, a, hit a ball and don't come back till dark and, you know, go and ride your BMX and go get lost in the forest. And then, you know, that that sort of, for the most part, is lost in, in the kids and in the adults as well. Because obviously I, I started doing my sports without social media and then it's grown into the age of social media. So I've seen it from all ends of the scale. And just a lot of people don't. What, what's the real you? You know, I've just taken four months off social media. And it's been epic um, and well, well needed. And, you, you know, look at the filters for, for women or young, young people and how they've got to look a certain way or act a certain way. And what hope have you got if you're not perfect? You know, some are, it's what it define perfection, define what's perfect, define what's good looking, you know. Um, they just fit and healthy that's it you know and just be be yourself but it's it's everything's just uh, geared towards the opposite at the moment it's it's scary but they're they make that's where they're making the money from all the data and all this criminal activity that's legal um and, and censorship and won't don't get, get me started on that <laughs> this whole censorship thing it's like what the fuck yeah, it's a scary time. It's a scary time when you can just have all your everything just shut down and and locked down and you could have your you know your credit cards blocked and your money taken away and it's going to get worse with the, the age of the digital, you know. So yeah, I, I want to see. I want to see it all collapse in my lifetime, but right at the end,
0: <laughs> right before, last breath,
1: <laughs> right at the last breath. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny as well because you said about being born in the late 1900s, and my God, that sounds like we're so fucking old. <laughs> yeah, I know, classic late 1900s. That sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I want to kind of uh, lead you through a little bit of the the career side, and then get to the skydiving. So, I know. Um, from your website that you went into carpentry, but then almost more interestingly, you found yourself working oil rigs. So kind of walk me through that career uh, journey that yeah. you were on.
1: So I had a pretty awesome career. I mean, I, again, as I said, I started work really young. So I had a good work ethic. If you want something, you've got to go out and get it. So I wanted to leave. So I loved woodwork. Um, I didn't really like school and I loved just being outside. So basically my dad said, "If you, I could do this TAFE course to get a pre-apprenticeship. And if I didn't get an apprenticeship out of it, I had to go back and finish school. So while I was waiting for that, I was just pushing trolleys for living and stacking shelves. And the the thing is, like, anything you don't like to do, any work stuff, just treat it as a game. And so, like, I had the most fun pushing trolleys. How many trolleys can I push in how much certain time? How many shelves can I stack in a certain time? So you're giving 100% to anything you do. Anyway, I got a job as a carpenter, apprentice carpenter, and, and went through all that. But... As I as I did that in construction I, it's when I found skydiving and so eventually my my paid leave would run out and then I got it my boss was amazing so I had a lot of unpaid leave and then I was like oh shit I can't even do this anymore so that's when I had 50 bucks in the bank and I went full-time skydiving just took a massive risk and you know the best decision I ever made was quitting my job and going skydiving and the second best decision I ever made was quitting skydiving and going, getting a real job again <laughs> so, so I did basically 10 years off and on of professional skydiving doing camera work and coaching and tandems and then basically there's a few accidents happen to friends and my best friend I watched him have a double malfunction on a tandem and he managed to leave he just broke his back and we're like you know what fuck this industry it's all changing there's a lot more rules let's let's get out of here and and we had a few friends in the oil industry, and we're like, what, what, what can we do that gives us good money, free accommodation, free food, and heaps of time off? And it's like oil rigs. So what we did, we all went and did rope access uh, non-destructive testing. So it was like the good part of the oil rigs because I'm, I'm pretty against all that stuff as well. But basically we were testing to make sure all the pipes worked and, and everything was clean and, and, and good. Um, but we'd hang off the ropes and, and test out all the stuff that people couldn't get to. So it's quite an exciting job. And I worked in the UK for a while. I ended up breaking my collarbone super bad. So I had to take some time off. But I ended up uh, getting a job in Africa, uh, which was really cool, but it was a real eye-opener to how much, And know, I'll, I'll blame America again, but how much America is fucking the world with the oil industry. It was disgusting to see what's happening over there. And But I did that for a few years and I ended up getting banned. I mean, I'd already left, but I made a video showing the flare tower. So basically this this one company, they controlled the oil and they gave the gas to the people, but the people couldn't afford to make a gas plant. So the gas was getting burnt off 24 hours a day, seven days a week, massively, you know. And it was just, it used to eat me alive and and how much waste was going on. It was was really terrible. So I ended up leaving that job when the contract finished. I, I went to Australia for a bit, worked on the oil rigs there for a bit, but then met my wife and I moved back to Switzerland again. And I was just like, the oil rigs were good because it got me out of a lot of debt, um, gave me heaps of time off um, and, and good money. And I never changed my lifestyle. So I was earning good money, but I, I still like lived and ate very cheaply and <clears throat> basically moved to Switzerland. With, I just quit everything. I'm like, fuck, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So 20 years earlier, I dreamed of working a full season, a winter season in a snowfield in a bar. So... It's 20 years later, and um, I, I did that. I actually worked worked in a bar for a couple of seasons and, and become an alcoholic and uh, <laughs> had a great time. Um, but then after that, I was like, what, what do I need to do? You know, I've got to do something here. And that's when I came around with, with becoming a professional base jumper. And I'd been teaching base jumping off and on since 2003 anyway around the world. And, and true story, but it's, it's quite a funny one. But I, I started teaching in America because I just wanted – I love American-Mexican food. And it basically was a good excuse to get over to America, jump this legal bridge in in Idaho and eat heaps of Mexican food and and make break even for it. But eventually I was losing money doing that. So I had to make that decision to turn it into a career. And that's when the the base drumming school that that is now started. And that's what I've been doing ever since for the last, was it 10 years pretty much? Mm.
0: Well, I'm sure most people listening can agree that, yeah, if you're thinking of Mexican food in America, Idaho is the state you're going to make a beeline for. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I know, it's classic. 20 years ago, it was 2002, and I, I used to live in an airport hangar on a couch in uh, Caldwell near Boise, and I used to r- help run the drop zone there. And I went there to learn there's this legal bridge because Australia everything's illegal, and there's in Twin Falls, Idaho, there's this epic bridge and it's legal to jump there. So I just moved close to that and... It was just raging there, and and I kept coming back for many years since, and and go jumping. But yeah, like the Cafe Rio and La Fiesta and oh, Five Guys Burgers and the classic American junk. But <laughs> <laughs> this is so good when I was younger. You know, when you you know when you're younger, unless it pointed out to you, you're not thinking so much about the health of foods and stuff because your body's just consuming when you when you're expending so much energy. Um, and with being super fit, you can get away with a lot when you're younger. It's only when you get older and you become mortal. And then you're like, shit! What's this gut biome they're talking about? And, why can't you know, I poop properly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's like you know, and like right. Why why am I stuttering? Ah, oh, vodka. As we, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to get sober here, and I'm going to sort my shit out, and I'm going to try and live my best life as a, as I deteriorate. You know, so so I'm probably the fittest and healthiest I've ever been right now. But just getting sober and 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 keeping the fitness up and learning about meditation and and listening to various podcasts on, on fitness and health. And uh, I've just come off this 11-day um, ayahuasca ceremony in Peru where they really – the ceremonies are one thing, but the all the stuff around it, like ceremony of the word and, and talking about um, how you're feeling and how different triggers can sense your, like, get your emotions going and how that will turn that into fight-or-flight mode and make your heart incoherent and all this, all this amazing stuff that I wish I had when I was tw- 20 – um, and, you know, the voice in your head, the shadow voice and how to work with the shadow voice and let it pass through meditation and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's literally changed my life in the last few weeks. It's incredible. And, and diet as well. So we had to be a strict diet for a couple of weeks and during and I'm just finishing off the diet now and yeah my poos have never been so incredible I'm like <laughs> I literally the other day I looked and I'm like dude I want to take a photo that I put on rate my poo.com because this is a fucking masterpiece that's <laughs> you the that poos. <laughs> yeah that shows you getting old when you're like that's a good poo bro <laughs> you know but it's like because my gut's healthy for the first time probably ever and and now now you know hanging out with Burn and, and doing this project that we're doing with nutrition it's like right, I've got a good starting point now. Let's build on that and let's turn all the bad addictions into good addictions um, and let's keep keep working this and see how far we can take it. So I sort of set myself a five-year goal, you know, besides the project we're working on, a five-year goal, let's see how healthy and fit I can be by 50. You know, let's see if I can be at my fittest and healthiest at, at 50, um, which is a good goal to have.
0: Absolutely. I know I've had, you know, I, one of the big things that's worked really well for me, aside from obviously actually eating good food, is uh, collagen. And Thorn, who's the the uh, sponsor for Human Performance Project, the, um, they have a bunch of supplements. And then Bub's Naturals is actually the collagen that I take. But it literally is so good that I went from, you know, again, that like you're talking about, the kind of torn up stomach to you wipe once and you're like, there's nothing there. And I'm almost looking around like, I want to show someone right now
1: my yeah. toilet paper.
0: I've never That's, seen yeah. this. This is amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am so old.
1: <laughs> yeah. I got introduced to college and when I, I broke last January 24th last year, I broke my leg really badly sledding and I a double spiral fracture. And it was the first, I've had a lot of injuries over oh, over my life. Never, never jumping, always like sledding or skeleton racing or skateboarding or surfing or just just partying a lot of partying <laughs> and um but I never looked after myself through my injuries and I could never afford or I chose never to afford to spend money on healing um because I never expected to live past 30 that was part of the deal going hard back in the day with the jumping and but this when this accident happened it really it was the accident was that bad that it really threatened my career so I literally healed this thing obviously as well as the surgeons did, did the surgeons did some really good work and um, I healed in five months and I was running again. And, and then the surgeon told me to stop running. But I did it to prove that I could do it. And, and just living healthy with collagen, peptides, and all the right supplements and eating right and resting and just putting, especially putting yourself in a good mindset um, that really made a massive difference. So it, it really turned my life around to be like, right, that's if that's what I can do when I'm broken, imagine what I can do when I'm not broken. And that's, I think, why this human performance project is so, so important. There's so much stuff that we are about to do while we're here with the testing to start that and, and using not just the physical aspect of it, but the science behind it and actually have a data and knowledge to show me live that if this is working or something needs to improve, it's going to be huge. So you're not just hoping for the best, you know? So yeah, so I did the mouthpiece yesterday. So we just sent that off and um, I've, I've got sleep apnea. I got diagnosed three years ago and I was about to go back to Switzerland and Buy one of these mouthpieces anyway. So now we're sorting that out. And that's going to be a huge game changer for me personally between sleep and then the way that works uh, when you're doing uh, sports and stuff as well, gives you live, live feed and, of what you're up to and, and what your body's actually doing. So, and there's a lot of other stuff I can't even describe or explain or spell, <laughs> but there's a lot of cool stuff going to happen in the next few weeks. And then, you know, having that data over the next sort of year is going to be um, amazing and for the bigger cause of, of everyone as well. Absolutely.
0: Well, I want to get to, to that in a little bit, and I want to get to your skydiving, Jeremy, but just one question. Um, because you, you kind of, you know, look back. Obviously you you lost your father recently. You know, you said you had that kind of, you know, rough upbringing. Um, you had the partying. You have, you know, a, a draw to extreme sports that may or may not kill you. You know, you may not live past 30. Now you did this ayahuasca. When you look back, were there elements of trauma? Because this this comes up over and over and over again on this podcast. Elements of childhood trauma that that you kind of were unaddressed, that maybe were revealed when you had this kind of epiphany recently.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting because the way that I came to do this ayahuasca is like something broke inside of me a few years ago, and I I couldn't work out why I changed and why I was going downhill when I should have been at my happiest mentally um, and emotionally. Um, and you know, like in our sport, we've lost a hell of a lot of friends, and I've seen a lot of bad stuff. So, you know, you know, I'm not a military guy, so I'm not going to pretend to um, have the same sort of trauma as military guys. But I've seen probably uh, similar similar stuff to them to a certain extent, and um, and so for sure, it takes its toll. But it wasn't. I always felt like I dealt with the deaths quite well. You know, like 2004. I watched my girlfriend die at high speed, um, and then I watched a lot of my friends die throughout, and uh, Watched my dad pass away, you know, it's a different story, but it's just, you know, it's still a death. And um, one of the things that came up in the ayahuasca was I wasn't there for mum. So she gave me a blessing to go travel and uh, she had an eight year battle with cancer. And it was super gnarly. And um, seven days before she passed away, she gave me the blessing to go to Mexico and jump into the cave of the swallows, which is like a 1200 foot hole in the ground. So I went there and, and raged. And then I, was literally in the middle of nowhere. And I got a, the phone call. Somehow they rubbed this before mobile phones. So I was able to get a phone call there to say, you've got to get home now. And I never, it took me 35 hours to get home and I never quite made it for mum's passing. But I was also in the mix of super selfish jumping everywhere, you know. So I think I, think I put that behind me. I don't think from memory, I'd never cried for mum as well. And, you know, she gave me the blessing. We said all the things that we needed to say, you know, we didn't leave on bad terms, everything, everything was said. So, um, but I think I shelved that as well. So the first night of ayahuasca, I didn't take ayahuasca. So we did six ceremonies. I did five. But um, that stuff did come up in there and a few friends have lost, even without the ayahuasca, the way the ceremonies were. um, The ayahuasca just enhances that experience, but it all still works without it as well. So I think that's a big misconception that people think it's a drug and it's not a drug, it's a medicine, but it's an environment. That was the coolest thing. This whole ayahuasca ceremony was an environment to allow openness and to allow um grief and to allow trauma and to allow you to identify and pinpoint stuff that's from your childhood so in the end we sort of worked out because i had a great parents you know there's no no regrets and mum was really strict but she probably needed to be and you know dad dad i think mum had three miscarriages before me but they reckoned because of the agent orange the chemical warfare that they were using in Vietnam. and so there's all these other issues and stuff as well and and um and I think it just stemmed back to this, you know, when I was young and, and they, they did put me on a leash and, and, and stuff. I never thought of it as a bad thing, but the way that the facilitators were able to get back to those raw emotions and identify that, that really came up and it really let go of a lot of tension, a lot of trauma. And throughout the ceremonies, it's incredible stuff. I mean, I was drawn to that anyway. Like some people can do it mellow through meditation. I need a good shake-up. I like like hardcore stuff and so it was a good shake-up for me and the purging was phenomenal and the way that the, the maestros would come around and there's four of them they sing in four different frequencies so you get a personal maestro four four times in that night and especially the women they're in their 70s and it's pitch black and you're sitting there for six hours and it's tough you know and it's you take the medicine and literally they would sing and then next minute your guts are just like oh go. Oh, oh. and while they're singing they're bringing up the trauma and so at times you're there with your best friend, the bucket, you know, and you're spitting into it and it feels like this metal in your mouth and you've got snot coming out and you're crying and then you've got to go for a shit. And then when you think you've had the shit, you shit some more. And you're just, every night you're just purging out this trauma. And a lot of it, some people have very clear epiphanies of what it was. Um, for me, I never got that many visuals and stuff throughout except for the last night. And but the trauma that was coming out, you know, I couldn't identify it, but it was coming out of everywhere and it was incredible. And by by the last night, I had this overwhelming sense of gratitude came over me. So, so a lot of visuals at that point, but I've done a hell of a lot of psychedelics. So, some people would freak out about that stuff because they've never done that sort of thing, because I'm experiencing that realm anyway. It wasn't that big a deal. in that, you know, I learned to let myself go on that last night, but the gratitude I felt was just phenomenal. I realised that, like, we're here on this earth and you can be miserable or you can ha- be happy and it's okay to be miserable. We'll just be grateful that you're miserable. <laughs> and it's a weird one to explain because you get told that in all this, the, the books and, and things like that. But one of the facilitators said something very, very straightforward. He's like, one day you will die, but it's only one day. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, the rest, you know, he's got a Spanish accent, you know, and he's, he's just beautiful, you know. And it's, it's only one day. The rest of the days you're alive. So, you've got to go through the flow of all these emotions, whether they're up and down. Now, what happens in our lives is we hit these extreme highs because, you know, you're flying your wingsuit off a, a meter off the ground at 200 k's an hour. That's a good feeling. It's extreme highs, but then you're watching your friends die and it's extreme lows. So, your frequencies and your wavelengths, a, a, a big extents you know whereas normal person's lives are like little waves for the most part so um so what happens when you have those massive highs i found is you want to continue those highs and that's where you start drinking heavily and you know they're drinking to mask the lows as well so you have your friend die you just want to get wasted to celebrate their life and to cry your tears out and then you do these really cool things you want to keep the party going so drugs and alcohol kick in and and eventually and then you you know you you swap the alcohol out next to me, you get a sugar craving because you're swapping one thing for another. Or if you're used to doing things in excess, you know, like why why do one jump when you can do ten? Why have one biscuit when you can have the packet? You know, why have one uh, shot when you can have ten shots? And and that's a that was my life, and my life became like that. And the better my life got, the worse all these things became, which is really interesting problem to have and and to identify it. So when I was working six days a week, I couldn't a normal job. I couldn't drink or party because I had to be on job or I get fired. And then I lose my income to do the cool things. But my life got that good that I was able to do the cool things all the time. Um, And I was the boss of doing all the cool things. So all of a sudden i got time and a little bit of money to party. And it became at one point it went bad. At one point I was like, you you just, it's habitual now and you're drinking every day just to sort your hangover out. And it's like shit what the fuck has happened you know and that's when I started to wake up to myself and it's taken me three times to stop drinking and stop partying but I'm like I'm I'm through it all now and and to try and turn and there's even the quick dopamine fixes of like your mobile phone and stuff like I just turn all notifications off and through this ayahuasca ceremony we had the phone off the whole time no music no phone And just to listen to the jungle music of the insects and reading a book and and resetting the the mind, the body, and essentially the soul and just getting rebalanced. I realised that everything was so out of balance and I just needed a good shake-up to get myself sorted again. And I've come out of this thing just with huge gratitude. I've got full focus and I'm firing on all cylinders again. It's it's phenomenal, you know, and the the books I'm reading, the projects I'm involved in, they're all channelling my energy towards Uh, health and fitness now and and good mindset and and then now that i've had to to help myself the whole purpose is to be able to help other people and that's where the real joy comes in that's where the true dopamine and the true selfishness comes in is is being sort of selfless to a certain extent actually gives you such a kick that that that's way better than all the other stuff but in saying that i had to personally go through that journey to get to this point so so it's like you can only i want to help all the young guys in my school to show them that there is a, a better way to go through it that I've been through. You don't need to go to hell and back to get to this point, um, but you also still got to experience life to try and do it in a balanced fashion. So, but if I had to speak to my younger self again, I think my younger self would tell me to get fucked. So I'm, trying to work out a way. <laughs> I'm trying to work out a way to do it and, and be the cool uncle and try and, try and find that way to, to balance it all out. So everyone can still have fun. You know, I, I say to the guys, I'd like, be smart about being dumb.
0: Younger <laughs> self would be like you were born in the 1900s. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah
0: <I'm> glad. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it's so so amazing to hear, and, and there's you know, C- especially the seal community. For some reason, they've had so much luck with um, some with ayahuasca, a lot with Ibergame, which is a very similar, I think, kind of experience. But and the irony is, we talked about drug prohibition earlier that all those things are illegal in the countries that they fought and almost died for. But um, you know, I can parallel so. Um, clearly with the extreme sports, you know, athlete and the military and police and fire. Because again, we're, we're not flying a meter from the ground, you know, leaping off a mountain, but obviously we're going in certain situations where, you know, it is life or death and you might not come out of that building or that, you know, school shooting or whatever it is. And so there's, there's so much, uh, so many similarities between what you've described. And I think what's many, many of us use. Because I love that kind of um, oscillation description. Our waves are very extreme. You know, our highs are you know uh, four stories up with a chainsaw in your hand, two in the morning with fire ripping out in your face, and then the lows are you know running on a rolled ankle at three in the morning, your twenty-first call, and you haven't slept for two days. So yeah, we have those extremes as well, and we reach for the very things that you talked about.
1: Yeah, and I think in all our, all our sports and lifestyles and careers, we're always striving for excellence, you know, and that sort of person that joins those special forces or the fire brigade or excels at extreme sports, whatever we're reaching for perfection, you know, and it's a, it's a tough one to chase that all the time and it can, it can essentially wear you out. And the thing is there was no information about that point until recently, or at least I didn't discover it, about being worn out by doing too much extremes, and it's very interesting so like at least for me now I'm learning i wake up in the morning and i meditate just 10 minutes and i'm terrible at it but make that effort to just calm the mind um, and then take time out in the day if i can to do it again and and just get a feeling forward just try and switch off and relax feel i'm learning now i actually learned through a singing course that stand there and feel feel each part of your body as you're playing guitar or singing like you might be standing there and your butt cheeks are super clenched and you don't even know, so you're tense for no reason when you think you're relaxing. Um, so I've learned to whenever I'm sitting in that just feel like something's tense and, oh, just release release that muscle and you relax and it sort of help yourself get out of flight or fight mode. And I think it's what I'm learning now is that I never like taking time off or re- resting or relaxing, but it's to relax a little bit and rest a little bit or, you know, just even read a book just takes – will make your life and longevity so much better. So that little taking those moments out now actually make you do more cool shit the longer. So, but it's, I'm only just learning this now, but at, at the same time, you know, it's I'm not too late. So I'm turning my whole focus into, into that aspect of life now. And I think it's hugely important for, for, for military guys, for, you know, fire, any anyone active, every, everyone really, you know, but any, anyone active. And it's about, you know, reaching a higher vibration. So everything vibrates, everything's got a frequency and it's about trying to trigger into those higher frequencies and for so long i was getting lower and lower frequencies and negativity creates negativity and if you start having all these negative thoughts and they keep going eventually that's going to turn into um health health issues or addiction issues or all this sort of stuff and i'm living proof for it because it really went downhill there for me for a while and and there's one thing i talk about now is you know because i I like to do um motivational talks and stuff like that but i haven't done any for a while because i'm not I won't be honest about my ending until, which I've just received, you know, to, to tell an open and honest account of everything I do. I don't want to be preaching some bullshit quote, you know, I've got integrity for that. And so um, I'm lear- learning now about this stuff and there's there's rock bottom, but like there's someone's rock bottom might not necessarily be your rock bottom. So, you know, look at someone starving in, in the third world country that's just looking for food and, you know, and, they're just looking for shelter or something. that's absolutely rock bottom for sure. but there's first world rock bottom as well, and everyone has their own rock bottom. So mine was a certain level that I hit that I might like, right. I can either take this even further and ruin my life, or I can bounce off rock bottom and make a change. Um, and it's hard to make a change. It's hard to open up and talk about your feelings. It's hard to express to someone that you've received a lot of trauma and you don't know what's wrong, and you you asking for help and you know it's, it's tough to do that especially for like i'm not saying i'm an alpha male in any way shape or form but there's there are alpha males out there for sure and it's it's tough to do that um to to express yourself and, and at least acknowledge that there's an issue that's inside that you don't understand you know if you cut your arm you put super good on it or bandages up if you break your leg you get a cast but for the internal the mental health and the emotional stuff it's uh, especially to do with trauma um it's it's not widely talked about yet um, as far as I know, and so I think it's a, the next stage of things is is to really use use these platforms and independent platforms to talk about it and then combine it with learning about gut biome and fitness and health and just a, a better way of living. And eventually, we can spread this all across the board.
0: Well, I think what's uh, kind of just rang in my mind as well, I think what's scary in professions, whether it's extreme sports or whether it's a profession where you can die, when your mental health becomes less than ideal, I, I, you know, I, I see this in in my profession. I hear stories from the military, and I can see how it would also be a real risk in your profession, where that fear of death starts to diminish as people are becoming you know, the 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 wiring in their brain is starting to become miswired, and you know the the suicide ideations or some of the the attributing emotions are happening that diligence of risk mitigation that i want to get into in a little bit as well that your profession is known for the professionals in your your sport i can see how maybe some of that care isn't taken anymore as as um you know that emotional side starts to to pay into what would be your diligence because of the fear of death
1: Mm, i i'm i totally agree with you there I, i got i'm super lucky with what i created with the school is that I get to go back to basics all the time. So my biggest fear for me, you know, there's, there's basically three ways a base jumping can die straight up. It's not, not knowing your limits, complacency, and messing with the weather. So those, there's heaps of other factors as well, but um, base jumping itself is actually a really safe sport. It's perceived risk over actual risk, but it's very easy to add risk. So you've got your, your best baseline as far as risk um, matrix goes. is like, if you want to be safe, don't jump simple that's done and there's your risk matrix there that's your baseline so that's fine but when you decide you're going to jump that's your baseline for risk so and if you do everything right it's the baseline stays that way but as soon as you add complacency bad weather jumping tired not eating well you know um, not knowing your limits pushing everything bravado ego arrogance you're really adding risk very very quickly and that's how things go wrong so my biggest um Fear for me is complacency because of my experience in the sport. So I'm very grateful that six times a year I get to go back to absolute basics with my students and I do everything they do. So I'll work on all my canopy skills and I'll train everything. I'll turn it all into a game so it's fun and I get to go back into that and I really have to catch myself out all the time to make sure I stay diligent with that because it's one thing to skateboard, um, to, you know, to skate the mega ramp, I use this term a lot, that you have to be a good skateboarder to skate the mega ramp. And if you're going to have an accident, You're probably going to break your ankle or something like that, you know, roughly. In base jumping, you don't need the training um, to to jump off a cliff. And most of the time you'll get away with it. But what you do need the training and the skills for if something goes wrong. So you're training the whole time and hopefully nothing goes wrong, which is mostly the case. But when something does go wrong, it goes wrong bad. And it's a very simple sport with very simple consequences. So, um, and, and for the most part, people in our sport don't train. I'll just go and do this. It's super easy to have fun. It's hard to train. So so most people just jump off with with not understanding the risk involved for when things go wrong. So, you know, it's like a a a fireman, you're training all these drills and hopefully you never have to use them. But that one time you you have to use them, like things can go wrong very quickly in the mountains. And so it's really important to have that skill set and keep using it. So, again, I'm lucky with my school that I keep going back to the basics and learning that. Um, and it's hugely important. And, and also on top of that, you know, you get to have fun because you're watching these guys, their dreams coming true. And my, my job as a instructor is to make their dreams come through without the carnage, the chaos and the blood that's been spilt over the years.
0: Um. So you hit on so many topics. Complacency is a huge one that, you know, is life-threatening in the fire service. And I'm not by any means saying that, oh, I was always, you know, hundred percent, you know, on my game, but The moment that you start thinking that you know it all in the fire service it's time to retire you know the moment you you forget the basics for all the shiny object cool shit then it's you know it's also time to kind of scale back um how do you in your your world your your profession foster that ownership of training that back to basics mentality so that you can try and fight some of the complacency that will come as you start progressing as the years go by yeah, I've got, got a few
1: tools that we use. Basically, we allow our students to come back on any course forever for free. So, and that's happened time and time again. We'll get guys coming back, and you know, well, social media can make you uh, go too hard too quick as well. Um, you know, people start getting the likes and stuff like that. It can change you whether you like it or not, and whether you notice. So, we'll have um, students come back to just come back to basics again as well. I also try and be the cool uncle. So, it's like if you want to do something, Let's do it together and I'm going to show you how to fix it when you fuck it up because I fucked it up <laughs> and I learned how to fix it and that's how I got to this point. So, so it's, again, it's like a lot of the world will say, no, 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 you can't do that. And the first, if someone tells me no at 45 years old, I will go fuck themselves and I'll go do it. It's still punk rock, you know. It's a, so we're like, right, well, you're going to do it anyway, so let's do it together and let's work out a safe way to do it. Not so you can do it once and be rad, so you can do it in longevity because my mentor died in 2000 and Three No, Dwayne. So first mentor was 2003. Then Slim died in 2004. And um, he's missed out on 18 years of epicness. And this guy is an incredible human being. And it pains me to think that some of my friends that did 10, 15, nearly 20 years and have missed out on so much. So my life has just evolved and the technology has evolved in this sport so much more now than it had, was in the past. And why would you want to miss that? So I try and explain that to my students as well. We use a lot of... Um, it's, I mean, blatant reverse psychology, you know, to, if we make our students pick up rubbish throughout the course and stuff like that, if they don't pick up rubbish, they fail because I believe that you should make the place better than you found it. But we also tell them that if, if you pick up rubbish, your parachute's going to open on heading, so it's good karma and it's good to be, so it's a selfish act, picking up rubbish and helping the environment's a selfish act because it's going to make your parachute open good. So we try and turn everything into a bit of a game like that and and try and make them the, training your parachute skills make it fun and see how you would just have little activities that we do to make it fun and accuracy competitions and, you know, put a case of beer on the line. So the, the loser has to buy a case of beer and a bit of ridicule, a bit of fun Aussie ridicule. And, um, and that way we get them thinking about training and we also get them to like save something for next year. Um, and to also you're only as good as your last jump. So every time I come back every year, I'll go back to basics myself because I'm uncurrent. And I'll just build up, you know, I can build up in a short period of time, but I'll just build up from small suits to bigger suits and then and then peek out once the season kicks right in. And I, I'll explain to those guys that like like longevity, like think the long game. If you're hurt or killed, you can't have fun anymore. You know, and I've been hurt doing a lot of stuff and it sucks. And but when it comes to the jumping, I'm I'm really focused on it. Um, but just and the, the fact that you you can't unsee certain things. And you can't undo certain things in our sport. And it's not just the person, or, you know, you dying or getting hurt. It's the ripple effect of the families, you know, calling the parents, watching the heartache, watching the kids grow up without a dad, you know, all, all this sort of stuff It's terrible. And my, my job is to have these guys not have to go through that. So if I can educate them, but in a cool sort of young person's way and with a good attitude, then they won't need to find all this stuff out for themselves. Um, and and hopefully that will breed into their groups and their ripple effect in a positive way out to their their communities as well around the world. And so far, it's pretty good. And uh, we 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 do it with fun. We do it with respect. Um, and we do it without telling them no, no, no. We have a few key rules. But in the end, our goal is to watch them succeed and to be awesome um, and to be fulfilled in themselves. And so with those. With, those, with that attitude, um, so far it's been really good to help them along their way and people actually do listen and they do want to do the right thing and we'll have a lot of students, you know, they, they'll go through a five-year period and we, we're we there the whole way for them and we'll take them into the proxy flying and we'll show them how to do it safely and how to have longevity. So, so so far so good, you know, by the time I hit 50, they probably won't listen to me anymore. But
0: <laughs> Beautiful. Well, like I said, there's so many parallels to, to our professions as well, so thank you. Well, speaking of the base jumping and the skydiving, um, I want to transition to the human performance project, but obviously the first segue would be how you met Ryan. So talk to me about when you guys met and then walk me through how you became part of the project.
1: Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, I met Ryan in 2016. Um, he was doing another project um, and he employed me to be his coach in base jumping and stuff. And I'm pretty strict no matter what who it is, whether it's girl, boy, Famous person, normal person or whatever. I'm, I'm pretty straightforward with everything. So, you know, he's a Navy SEAL and stuff, but I was pretty tough on him at times. And, and just because, again, you want him to survive and you want him to succeed. And, and and just, you know, we're all equal as people, but sometimes you're more experienced in someone than something else. So you can see the things that they can't see. You can also see their future if they're doing bad and good so we we struck up a really good friendship straight away and we had a good time and got him sorted out with his project and, and went our separate ways but kept in touch off and on you know and then um he just yeah from, from what I understand what he spoken to me about he had a lot of respect for me with the way I taught and the way I coached and basically it the timing couldn't have been more incredible out of the blue he rang me up and we had a meeting um on zoom and it was just when I was hitting one of the sort of lower points and I'm just like, but, but I was actively making a change to sort myself out. And he asked me, do you want to be on this uh, human performance project? And when he explained it all, not just the end goal, the end goal is going to be incredible with the, the seven marathons, seven jumps, seven continents, seven days, like epic stuff, you know. And that, that inspired me just on the adventure side of things. But when he said what was involved with the, the mental health and preventing suicide and dealing with the PTS – and and, you know what happened with his sniper partner and it's just just horrible but he's actively wants to make a change and he's bringing in such an incredible team like i couldn't believe when i saw the team like i felt not worthy to be on it um but and he's not he's not just speaking shit he's a doer and that's what i knew that's from the start of my well he's going to do this you know and so and he has and I was so excited to be on the project for for selfish reasons, which I I said to him straight away, I'm like, this is going to help me get out of the shit place that I'm in. And I'm so grateful for that. And it was like the universe, um, as I was actively trying to make a change for myself, the universe was helping me along. And it really came at the perfect time. So not only that, if I can sort my shit out and I've been in the sport 25 years, all the people starting to jump now, I'm their mirror. I'm their 25 year in the sport mirror. So, I, you know, with the way my parachute opens, you, know, you do big delays, slide it down, and you, you're going from 100 plus k's an hour to zero in one second. And I times that by 2,000 times, and you're like, dude, I've probably got some brain damage, you know. Combine that with all the trauma of watching friends die, and then combine that with definitely excessive partying on many levels. You're like... Fuck, you know. No wonder I'm putting ice creams on my forehead. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> it's like it's quite, it's quite scary. So he's he's allowing through this project to help uh, identify all these these potential issues from not just emotional and mental um, aspect, but with science and data. And it really is the age of information. Back when we started jumping was the you know the age of big balls and let's go for it. But now it's really the age of brains and information. And so I have an opportunity to work out all these questions I have in my brain of why I'm like I am, why I've become like I am, why my brain does what it does and why my addictions and dopamine hits and all these things happen. And I can't work it out just on my own, but through all this data um, and science and these all these little gadgets we're gonna have and, and timing stuff when we're in a relaxed state or doing a public speaking, which is scary as fuck or base jumping, which is equally scary or, you know, going to a social gathering, we're going to have all this data on how our body reacts to all these situations. And it's not only going to help me, it's it's going to help my whole um, base jumping school and the whole generation of jumpers coming through that we can release this document at the end of it. That's from just a personal point of view, but as a collective with all the the ex-SEALs, the former SEALs, sorry, and all the military, fire brigade, ambulance, you know, all the fight or flight professions, this is going to be such a huge thing. And the other, I think we've got some, there's some NFL players on it that, are, you know, they've been, they've had an epic life, which has created a rough life, you know. So a lot of these people have had such good lives that that's what's created the problem. And it's a really hard one to address because anyone from the outside is just like, well, you are just been arrogant. you are just been a sports sport, you know. It's how do you explain to someone that my life went to shit because it was so good. <laughs> it's, it's it's a hard one. to explain. I still haven't worked out how to explain it in a talk yet. I'm trying to navigate those waters now, but um, with all this stuff as a collective and being able to document everything and then put our bodies through the ringer, um, it's going to be an incredible experience. And, you know, it's inspired me personally just to get even fitter and and run, like, further and better and and just optimise my body. As a middle-aged man, I'm already fit, but I can be fit, fit and, and healthy and then look after myself for the next, hopefully, 30 years. And Yeah, and, and once this document's done at the end, and the project's successful. And success doesn't mean we succeed in the project. That's the coolest part. The whole project's going to succeed no matter what happens. And the whole part of the journey is going to be what the success is. So, you know, this, I'm going to try and run at least one marathon. I'm going to try and run all of them. But my potential failure is going to be part of the success, you know. And, and that's what I love about it because I love, I love that it's not clear cut, to, but there's a clear goal and there's, there's a very clear journey. But where that journey is going to take us, it's not going to be a straight line. And I think it's going to be awesome. And it's going to help so many people and so many people in the future um, with this. And I think it's a really cool project to be a part of.
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, like I said, I'm kind of documenting, I guess, a his- historian in the whole thing, um, storytelling. And uh, it, even though that's my role, I, it's already got me fired up. That's my goal now is to be, make sure I'm not, you know, a weak link in the chain when it comes to to February next year. Same no. with me. <laughs>
1: I'm just going to be the weak link. I'm, I'm like, there's some strong links in this chain, you know, like you don't have to be first, but don't be last.
0: <laughs> exactly. Like I heard you talking about with base jumping. As long as you're not the slowest guy running away from the bridge, then you're oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with these seven continents obviously I, I'm familiar with uh, hopefully the landmark that he's going to be jumping from in, in London um, what are some of the challenges from a base jumping point of view with some of the structures that he, uh, well, you guys are going to be leaping from in the next uh, you know, seven days straight
1: yeah the, the big one is the, just the legalities in certain countries it's just a nightmare um, Australia is literally the worst country in the world for base jumping you couldn't pick a worse place um, so we can't even get permission at this stage to jump in Perth. Um, and they've had a heap of issues with base jumping over there and they make it a personal vendetta to bust us over there. Um, but we're still working through that. But the, the biggest challenge is, um, well, just the logistics of getting to the objects um, and then the weather for those objects. So we're sort of trying to choose objects that are less weather dependent than others, that have good accessibility, uh are legal um, which, is, which is especially for Australia, it's a tough one, um, and that are safe for, for people with various experiences to do. So that, that's a huge one, and also knowing that we're coming in under duress um, with fatigue, um, and that's our job with the technical guys is to make sure these guys are safe as well as us. So, but we're we're a team, we're a unit. So uh, we're we're going to operate like a, a casual military unit, you know, at least from my end, and and but make sure we're all checked and there's no weak links, there's no mistakes. Um, and we're triple-checking everything. That's the hardest part is just to keep the diligent up for that. But um, at some point, if we can't do the base jumps in one, in some of the continents, we'll just do the skydives. Um, but it's early days yet for that, so we're still working on permissions and things like that.
0: Well, I know it's seven days straight. We're going to be on the plane probably sleeping in whatever we're given when we're on the plane. Um, but coming from a chronically sleep-deprived um, uh, profession and seeing the impact of sleep deprivation what are some of the the kind of um, fail-safes that you're going to have to put in on the skydiving and base jumping side especially as you get deep into that week because the marathon worst case they fall over you know but and the swim worst case someone has to jump in and you know tow them back out but with the base jump skydive obviously that could be you know the on- the only part of that that triplet that you know potentially could be life-threatening.
1: Yeah, for sure. So a, again, especially the base jumping side of things, there's a very simple sport, which is good. So what we'll do is we'll have like like a helicopter has its own checks written down. They'll do it, do all the checks spot on every time. Um, we'll have a checklist that we'll go through. Um, so for the skydiving, it'll be say like as simple as like helmet strap, you know, helmets on, straps done up, leg straps on, chest straps on, computers on. So in skydiving, we have a computer that wiping that parachute for us too. Uh, Sky hooks on. Um, Altimeters on. Okay, make sure that if we need oxygen, we've got oxygen. Um, are you okay to jump? Because it's okay not to jump. That's still part of the process. If you're actually not okay to jump, that's a win. So identifying that problem is part of what will make us successful. So and it could be the strongest guy could have a moment where he's like, you know, I can't jump, and that's a, that's a huge thing as well. So that's that's a possibility too. Um, and with the base jumping, we'll have some sort of weather limit to a certain extent, and that will depend on what type of base jump we do because there's many different types we can do depending on the object and the weather. Um, and say for base jumping, it's very simple. Leg straps on, chest strap on, helmet on, uh, top pin's good, bottom pin's good, bridle's going directly to your parachute. Are you happy with your parachute? Okay, you're good to jump. Very, very simple. But what we'll do is we'll have a written checklist with that to make sure, and we'll double that up and triple that up. So what we do normally is on the ground when we're doing our school, we'll get the student to check their rigs on the ground, do a full check, then they'll put their rigs on, do a full check themselves. Then they'll get a buddy check to check them, and then myself and my head instructor, Sam Hardy, will do a secondary and a third check before they jump. So there's basically five checks per student per jump. So it's exactly what we're going to do then. But I think as an extra backup, we'll just have a, a quick checklist for both skydiving and base jumping. Have it laminated, and it can stay with everyone in their pocket, just a little pocket size one, um, and just make it just extra safe. You know, no no one died from over checking. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that,
0: and I think that's that's so again pertinent in our profession. Our SCBA, our air pack, and our mask is is the big you know tool that we check primarily. And I've seen people, many people diligently check it the way we were taught in Academy or even better. I right? leveled up on mine. There's a couple of things I saw people do. I'm like, I like that. I'm going to throw that in, but never regressed. And I've seen people come in on shift change and be like, yeah, pack's good. Oh, okay. And, you know, that to me is how you end up dying in a fire. If you do it the same every single time, even if, you know, you were on that, that vehicle before and maybe it went to yeah. another station and came out, whatever it is, if you... Follow that same exact checklist. At least you know, as you said, and then you're trained on all the, the kind of potential failures as well. You know, you're going in with, with a working piece of equipment, but I've had it before where someone's handed it over and the coupling, the high pressure coupling wasn't even attached to the bottle. So imagine if I made entry and took that first suck and, you know, now my face is on my, my masterpiece is on my face, you know, just things like that, or certainly bottles that, that, that have been in a leak. So they're like, yeah, your, your tank's good. And it wasn't, it was on empty or almost empty, which would be even worse. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's again, very pertinent hearing what you're talking about. Cause absolutely, whether it's, you know, a police officer checking their weapon and their taser or whether it's a firefighter checking their gear, it's imperative, especially as we're sleep deprived that we lean into these routines and these checks every single time.
1: it's It's huge, and what so what we do with our school, I always refer back to the school because it's where we're most diligent with this stuff. And basically we've got a hundred and seventy page syllabus for our course, and every every single thing's identified. And then what we do is we've got a set of quick notes that we use. We don't have to refer we know the syllabus off by heart, but we'll have these quick notes that myself and my two instructors will use. and then we'll go through that. We'll speak freely through all the points. And then the person who's not, the two people who aren't speaking, will refer back and cross-reference to them. Have, have I picked up everything? Is there anything you'd like to add to each each of the instructors? And we'll cross-reference, just because I've got more experience than the junior instructor, doesn't mean that I'm not human. So we'll always cross-reference to everyone to make sure we cover everything, and that's really, really big. And then we'll use three things to, to do the teaching and the checks, which is the VPV, which is visual physical and verbal so you're using three different senses to do your check so you're not just doing it in your own mind you're actually looking at the, at the gear you're speaking about the gear and you're touching the gear so those three things and, and we find that that's been the best way we can do it so far and also from a, an experienced guy's point of view don't be afraid to be that guy like chest straps good leg straps are good pilot shoot's good okay see you later ready set going, and, and speak out loud you know and we always have joke, you know make Jason like bum bags are cool tucking your shirt into your pants is cool you know like everyone so, says so stop being cool because cool is not cool this is cool you know and make make Ben looking like a douche and, and speaking out is, is the cool thing because essentially it's keeping you alive and it's it's so important to break that mindset of like trying to look cool and be cool and all that shit it's like like doing this stuff is the coolest thing. Like speaking and doing these checks and being rigorous in your safety is the coolest thing you can do because it allows you to have more fun for longer.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, thank you. I mean, so many parallels there. Now, I want to transition to some closing questions. Before I ask the first one, you mentioned right in the book uh, about your dad. Um, but then you've got the book Confessions of an Idiot. So tell me about that
1: oh geez i mean yeah it's, a, it's another world like I, I like to challenge myself throughout my whole life just to achieve personal goals you know whether it's uh, recording an album or or making a full-length video or just something just any project to do to keep me off the streets, sort of thing and, and i basically decided to write a book about my life because it's some crazy stuff going on and and i did it and i, I just wrote it just to, i basically wrote it like i'm not a writer you know i don't consider myself an author, but. I wrote it like I'd had three beers down the pub, and I was telling a story. That's how I wrote it because it was easy because it's just like I'd had three beers down the pub. I just wrote it as I speak, and they wrote it in my my accent, my way of speaking. There's not very many big words, and um, and just basically come up with this pile of papers at the end, and that's I'd left with that. I've like, I've written a book, good on me. And but my mate, he was pretty cashed up at the time, and he, he's, we just got chatting at dinner one time, and he's like, show me, so I gave him this pile of papers, and he's like, dude, this is good. You could make a real book out of this. I'm like, oh, bro, I've already written it. I can't afford it. Don't worry. He goes, how about I fund it and we'll make it an actual book? So we, we did that. It took another two years and they, they sorted it out. Did all this, the spell check would have taken forever. And the, you know and, and they did the layout. And, and then we just released it, just on limited release and then and then sold out and then put it onto Amazon. Do I just leave it sit there just so I had a copy of it because otherwise I'd lose everything. And, um, and that was that. And, you, you know, it's, it must have been nearly 15 years ago now I started writing and it's crazy how different life has gone and what, what's happened and how much craziness has happened since then. But how I probably wouldn't write that book again the way it was. But at the same time it was in a time of my life where that's just how it was and everything was loose and crazy and and, and it's good memories, you know. Um, but I, and I vowed, if I get to fifty, I'll write another book called "Open to Confusion." And <laughs> and it, it looks like I'm going to make it. There's a good chance I'll make it to fifty. And it'll be much more of a different story of just like the transition through everything in the second half of life. And 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 well, who knows? Let's see what the fuck happens in the next five years. You know? <laughs> but, but it just showcased the wild ride, and and there's you know a lot of cool things that I got to do, a lot of the heartache, and and hopefully it's it's helped a lot of people to. Either see the way that we lived and learn from it, enjoy that to a certain extent, but see where the downfalls of of too much partying or too much death and all that stuff happen. you know, the dark side of of sport and life that you choose. And, you know, for us at the start, it was all all reward, no risk. And then eventually it got so dark that it was more risk than reward there for a while. And You know, I had to try and find that balance. is, Is this really worth it? Um, living this lifestyle and then you have to eventually make some changes or you're going to go down a pretty dark path. So, so yeah, but that's not where the book ends. <laughs> that's where the new one will begin. You know? so, but again, a, a cool experience and I, and I did it and, you know, I've got a few other books there and the, the one on my dad's good. My favorite one's another book of um, it's called Fuck Yeah, I'm Scambo. And it's, it's my favorite. It's just so loose. And basically our friend Scambo uh, he had terminal cancer and he had a crazy life and he basically wasn't going to live. So I released this book on his life to um, help him pay for the terminal cancers, you know, to help pay for bills and stuff like that. And then the bastard beat it. <laughs> he tried this <laughs> drug that wasn't even going to work and it worked. And he's, uh, you know, he beat cancer through his epic lifestyle. And, and now, he's, you know, his dream was to own a house up in the forest. And he's done that and he's, he's lived to tell the tale. So I ended up releasing that on Amazon as well to just like cover the costs in the end and just because it's a great story of it's, it's craziness and, yeah, I, I also, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people over the years, and I just everyone has a story. I love just talking to people about their story. It's just amazing, you know. Everyone has a story. You know, that's just Go, go and chat to an old person, and hear what their their life's been like, and guaranteed, if you take the time to listen, they'll have a cool tale to tell.
0: Absolutely, I mean that's why I do this. Six hundred episodes. That's six hundred uh, yeah, people well, I got I, to talk to, and yeah, all walks of life, all colours, creeds, religious, you know, persuasions, and you know, the core core element of simply being a human and the highs and the lows and the loves and the losses if you know it binds them all together and the one thing and one prerequisite of the show is that you know it's a good person someone who's at least trying to make the world better you know so yeah but i mean that that binds us all and i agree with you completely some of them are you know hollywood stars and some of them are local firefighters or counselors and you know each story is as powerful as the next
1: yeah, that's it. And it doesn't matter who you are. This is how I keep everything simple. Like, a wanker's a wanker. <laughs> that not be a good T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't care if you're a rock star or Hollywood or if you're a, a plumber or a, a drug dealer or whatever, you know, like a human being is a human being. Um, and if they're showing good qualities, then they're a good person. But if they're a wanker, they're a wanker, you know. And I just don't surround myself with those people, you know. so. Unless they're all wankers and I'm a wanker and then I've surrounded myself with <laughs>
0: but then But then you think everyone yeah, was wankers. cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> but I mean, yeah, for the most part, the human race is wonderful and people are wonderful. And, you know, it's just, it's always just the minorities that fuck shit up for everyone. Absolutely. Know? The
0: squeaky wheels. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah the squeaky wheels. Yeah, I like it. <laughs>
0: All right, well, you've talked about the books that you wrote. So the first of the closing questions is, are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not a big reader, um, but the, the one book that's really helped me over the years was called Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Buck. And the best thing about it, it's a short book, so you can read it quick. Um, but my whole, whole back tattoo is, is based off this book. And basically, it's about a seagull That doesn't want to just be a seagull it it feels there's more to life than eating chips and and squawking on the beach and so basically he learns how to use his wings to fly and he learns how to do barrel rolls and he learns how to do other stuff but he got ridiculed by all the other seagulls for not fitting into the just being a seagull and eventually he manages to perfect his flight and next minute he's actually into the next level of consciousness so he's passed from this world into the next and he's hit another level of consciousness where he can advance his skills even more and be accepted by the seagulls that are there for being an individual and wanting more out of life. And he rises up through all these levels of consciousness to he basically reaches perfection. Um, And it talks about perfection as being there in the present moment. So my whole life, you know, I had a mohawk for like 14 years and I was always judged by how I looked. But that was the best thing that ever happened to me because there's 90% of the people don't want to know you. And then the 10% left are the awesomest people in the world that will get past your look. I've always had weird haircuts and piercings and tattoos and stuff like that. But the people that never looked past the the cover never got to to get to know me and never understood me. So that was beautiful. That that book was really um, a big deal to me. And my friend Fiona gave it to me 20-something years ago. So I traveled a lot with that. And then in recent times, I've been given a book called The Untethered Soul. Um, I'm not sure who it's by. I can't remember. But that's a really good, simple book on dealing with the, the shadow voice that's in your head, that's always in your head. And once you finally recognize that that voice exists, um, you can really make a change to your life and lifestyle. And just accepting that you have this voice that is your ego voice that's always talking, not always, but mostly talking down to you and trying to um, create a false narrative in your head. And, and, um, making up future stories that don't even exist and reliving past stories that you can't change and things like this. So there's a really good and simple book. I've actually read it three times already on how to acknowledge that that voice is there and be at peace with it and let those thoughts pass through, uh, through meditation and, and just actually acknowledging it there because it's never going to go away. So accepting it and turning it into a friend rather than a foe. And I think that, that If I was taught that in school, if people were more educated on that, the world would be a lot different as well. So um, I, I ask everyone to have a listen to that voice and accept it. So that, that book for me was a really, really good one. Um, any of the Mr. Men books, always good. <laughs> <It's a>
0: tickle. <laughs> no, Mr. Tickle's probably in prison now huh? because it's inappropriate to tickle people. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah <laughs> Um, And the book I'm reading now, which is really, really good, which complemented the ayahuasca Um, ceremonies very well. It's called Becoming Supernatural by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And it it talks about all this stuff as well, but it talks about aligning your energy fields and going to a higher consciousness to take take control of your life and get rid of the past and create the future. So it's everything that the ayahuasca ceremony did for me with the shake-up, this book lets you do naturally through meditation as well. So it's, it's a bit of a harder read and you've got to believe and have an open mind to this stuff. Um, but it's very, very good, and he's very successful and has a very good success rate with his people. So, yeah, so that's pretty much where I'm at at the moment. Um, Audiobooks-wise, I, I, I love Alan Watts. So oh, yeah. anything, anything on YouTube by Alan Watts um, is, is amazing. Um, News-wise, breaking points with Crystal and Saga for sure. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's all I can think of at the moment, yeah.
0: Now, what about movies and or documentaries?
1: Ah, oh, documentaries. The ones, uh, the, the sad one. It's a bit sad, but it's epic. Is the Ren and Stimpy documentary? One of my favourite cartoons. The first ever adult cartoon. Um, the, in recently on the plane, I just watched The Alpinist. Amazing. Very, very sad, but amazing. Um, oh man, there's so many, so many documentaries. Yeah, all documentaries are epic. <laughs> um, that that sugar film's a good one. It's a few years old now um it, it shows the history of sugar and how bad the sugar industry basically is so for a little bit of health there um that sugar film's a good one um what else i mean there yeah, you, you caught me out there. there's so many yeah
0: oh, that's enough no that's
1: brilliant yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: cool. all right well then the next question is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world
1: Oh, Have you had Bird on yet? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're actually okay. a couple yeah, of times. Cool.
0: We did we did one a couple of months ago to kind of announce the the human performance project. So yeah. But he'll be coming yeah. on again, you know, as we get close.
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think um who have I listening to? Oh, it's a good one. You could have prepped me on that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, if you look at it, just positive people, go get us for life. Straight off the bat, I'd have to say my head instructor, Sam Hardy. You know, he's 30, 13 years my junior. But he is a massive inspiration for me, and he's what's created the sport to where it is now. You know, I'm the old dog, and he's got the new tricks. So he's he's motivation. He's so far ahead of me with with health and fitness, and just dedication and motivation. It just inspires me to keep going. You know, so so he's he's for me. He's one of the people that inspire you the most. We're not only work colleagues, but we're we're friends, and we work so well together. He's got an open heart, open mind. Um, and he's just a phenomenal human being that needs more recognition. Yeah. And he, he's got, has got a massive heart for helping people constantly. So yeah, he's one of my biggest heroes and one of my best buddies as well. It's so luckily enough.
0: Brilliant. Sounds like an amazing person.
1: Yeah. Another one real quick is another awesome human who just came to mind now is Anne Halliwell. So she's an inspiration for me. She's been base jumping for 40 years. Wow. Um, She's a pilot now. She does all sorts of skydiving, flying. She's an expert skydiver, expert base jumper. She was a hero of mine and became a very good friend. Um, And she's the inventor of one of the best uh, pieces of kit that we have on our parachute systems called the tailgate. And she could have patented and had it all for herself, but she gave it away to everyone. It was was absolutely um, changing for the sport. And she's still flying planes. She must be pushing 60 now, 50 something. Yeah, and she's still awesome and she's still kick-ass and she's one of my big inspirations as well. But there's a a whole heap of inspirational people out there. But she's another good, one of the most kick-ass females I've ever met.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. This is why I love this question. Like when I ask an awesome person, name an awesome person that normally leads the rabbit hole of, you know, incredible stories.
1: Yeah, I think I, I am so blessed with the life that I've stumbled into that I get to hang out with some of the most incredible human beings on the planet at some of the highest levels as well. But I also get to meet all the people coming. Some of my biggest heroes and friends have come through the school as students. And you just like you just hit it off with these people and they just become your best buddies really quick. So it it doesn't matter what, what they are or where they're at. Like this I'm lucky that I get to meet cool humans and I'm in a profession that yeah it has its downsides and its dark parts for sure. But I'm in the process, I'm in the business of making people's dreams come true. And it's fucking awesome. The psychology of it and working through their their egos, their issues, their confidence, their lack of confidence and and sometimes pushing them, sometimes pulling them back. And um, it's just a phenomenal, um, phenomenal life that you get to work with these people. And I'm super, super grateful.
0: Now just quickly, um, what are some of the tools that we've used to help people overcome fear? So my one skydive I did, and I've only done one, not because I didn't enjoy it prior to it. I was in a McDonald's toilet, shitting myself literally and metaphorically when it was a tandem jump it was in um Nelson in New Zealand and uh by the time I landed, it was incredible and I was ready to sign up to become an instructor, but I had, you know, I was traveling backpacking. So that was it. But the fear of, you know, the perceived fear versus reality was so, so different. But in the past, I wouldn't have even gotten the plane. I don't know, fi- you know, finally how I got the courage to, to actually jump on that one. And then that changed everything for me. Um, but fear is a big thing in, in our professions as well, especially, you know, like climbing the hundred and. 20 foot aerial and some of the other things that we have to do there's certainly a pucker factor there um so what are some of the tools that you've used to help guide students that maybe had this fear of the unknown especially if after they you know ended up hugging you after because they just realized how much they fucking love what they just did
1: yeah yeah i mean first and foremost no sounds like go so, so it's like no, no 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 okay go 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 <laughs> okay. um that's in the skydiving anyway as a plane but no, look i think that one of the most important things is to show them that i also had one jump at one point and that i blacked out on my first skydive and that i'm shitting myself every jump and um, really show them that this is a human element is to be scared and it's working past that fear and having the process to work past that fear in a constructive way and to identify positive fear and negative fear is a huge one. So, so mostly it's about making sure I stay on their level. There's no hierarchy. Keeping a level playoff field with the only difference being that I'm more experienced than them at that point in time and working with them. And um, we have a very progressive course. It's high-paced, 11 days, 47 jumps or something like this in in three countries so it's very intense for people so that's why we have a we have to have the students have to have a lot more experience when they come in to even start our course because they have got to be able to deal with that sort of stuff and have time in sport but also make them aware that this is a long process and that the slow end up being the fastest the slow learners end up catching up and surpassing the fast learners and that if you have a if you have a weakness in something, that we're going to turn that into your strength. So when we do multi-ways and stuff, we don't want everyone to be awesome because it'll actually fuck up our multi-way system that we have. We want some people to be weaker trackers than others because they have a place in the jump to perform their slot. So by giving letting people know that like su- success still comes through your weaknesses, not just your strengths, um, but most importantly, have a good strong mindset, but also have the humility to be able to walk away um, and to say no and to come back another day. And that's it's a huge attribute. So one of the things I teach them, um, Sam as well, is once you're comfortable with the emotion of disappointment, it's a, one of the biggest tools you can have. And it sounds weird, but when you're on the edge of a cliff and the weather's shit and you've just done a two-hour hike, you obviously want to just get the fuck down off this big cliff or whatever, but you're putting yourself in excessive danger and it's the easy way out. But if you can walk away and embrace the disappointment of not being able to jump and the hardship to walk back maybe two hours in the rain or something, once you can come to terms with that, and it is tough for sure, that's your ego. That's you saying fuck you to your ego. Um, And then you embrace that and you live to fight another day. Um, It's it's such a huge tool to have in, in, in your toolbox. and. It's hard to explain to these guys initially because they haven't seen something go wrong when it goes wrong, when someone has just decided to jump in shit conditions or, or for whatever it is. And But I have seen that. So for me, it's a no-brainer to walk away and just come back the next year or the next 10 years. Some jumps, I, it's taken me 18 to 20 years to do some jumps, you know, but I'm okay because I've took that time to be alive still to do it. And, and also to tell them that no one's immune to death. You know, I lost one of my best friends uh, earlier this year who'd been in the sport for 25 years like me, and it was, it was really sad that he, he made this mistake and died. So you've got to teach everyone that no matter who you are and what experience you are, you have to stay diligent. So And and to come back, just come back on another, another jump another day. And it's okay to walk away. It's okay. We have some students take three years to do our course. Um, and we have some students that will quit. And that's quitting. We don't use the word quit. We use winning the game. So if you, I'm still in the game personally. And if I die doing this sport, then I'm not won the game. I've lost the game. So, but if you can either get out of the sport unscathed um, and, and live live your best life doing something else, or die peacefully in your sleep after having a successful career, then you've won the game. So my goal is to be old, still jumping, have a good time, and then. Pass away from you know natural causes or, or whatever's going to happen, um, but have, have my live my best life throughout that and try and teach these guys that as well. It is about longevity and you can have fun and if you enjoy hitting a golf ball and that puts a massive smile on your face, of going around the golf course, go do that. You know because right now if you're doing extreme sports, you're risking it all for nothing and it won't feel like that until the shit hits the fan and then you're like, what the fuck did I do that or why did he make that decision or um, so I'm trying to preempt these guys' future and, and help them live their best life, but for the right reasons, uh, and make sure that they can walk away um, and fight again another day. So, yeah, it's a tough battle, But, <laughs> you know. But again, I'm, uh, at least at this stage, I'm proof in the pudding that you can have longevity, um, but you also got to know when to when to say no.
0: See, again, such a strong parallel. First, I'm glad I asked that question because that was such a great explanation as well. But winning the game. The way that I'll pick, I'll talk about the fire service specifically, the way the American fire service is set up right now. It destroys our men and women physically, mentally. And I kind of did what you said. You know, I, I decided, okay, this, I'm seeing this in myself. I absolutely adored the profession. I was at a crossroads where I realized this was making more of an impact than me singularly with a partner running on one call at a time, of which in all honesty, 10% of what we run on is truly an emergency. Um, And so I transitioned out and part of it was owning my own health. I'm talking about how our job is killing us and I'm still wearing the uniform. Well, by transitioning out, it was kind of a statement to myself and our profession. Look, I'm serious. Like, you know, this is killing us. So either we view it as a military and, and you do eight years and then leave, or in a way you lose the game as you're talking about, because if you come out physically and mentally broken and you die either on the job or shortly after the job. I love the way you put that. It's a great way of illustrating fire, police, corrections, dispatch. If you die because of your job, you've lost the game. And I, mm. I love that analogy.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, using the word quit, it's such a negative, negative term, you know. It's, it sounds like you feel, like, dejected by saying something like that. But if you use that as t- terminology, you know, put words play a big part in everything. And how, what I'm learning as well is, like, positive, positive, um um, positive, oh, I forgot the word, <laughs> but you know, positive, um, talk and stuff like that. Plays that a big reinforcement. Card, yeah. Re- that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. My, my Australian, my, my English. Is my English. <laughs> 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 but yeah, like this positive self reinforcement and, and, and reinforcement to others, but, um, making, letting people know it's okay. You know, it's all okay. So yeah, we have one rule straight up a don't die. <laughs> You know, so after the first jump with our students, the only goal in our syllabus is to smile and survive. That's it. I don't care what happens, just smile and survive, and then we've got a baseline to work from from there on in, and then we can start learning some skills after that.
0: Love it. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, one more question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, where to find the school. What do you do to to decompress? And I'm sure that's very very different now you come out of ayahuasca.
1: I'm I'm definitely evolving. So. (laughs) So, um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm meditating a little, I'm reading books. I, I love to play music, so I play a lot of guitar and I'm going to record some music and, you know, I might not be the best musician, but it's a good release for my negative emotions or feelings or any downtimes. I just like to write write poems or songs and stuff like that. So for me personally, I love to go just walking. I live in the mountains most of the time, so I go walking. If I'm by the ocean, go surfing or body surfing. Um, I paraglide a lot, So and I don't... Because I do so many extreme sports. For me, paragliding is all about sitting in my big lounge chair wing, put some nice African music or something on, swing from side to side and just cruise through the air on very nice conditions, and, and that's my, my release. Yeah. So, so if it's anything between music, um, reading, and just chilling, riding my bike. You know, I love riding around my local area and just normal stuff that's just starting to bring me peace after all the chaos you know and, I, and I'm blessed because I get to do I get to base jump for my job um, which is epic I still base jump for fun heaps as well but it also frees up a lot of time to do other sports and other aspects of life and um, I just broke up with my wife um, after nine years last year and I've just started to travel again now the COVID's finishing up and I just started to travel again so I've been on the road now for four months and um, that's been that's been pretty epic checking out South America and and cruising around in Hawaii. And then I busted myself up surfing. So I've just been recovering from uh, nose reconstruction. So that's been a journey unto itself. <laughs> so, um, but just also, you know, what this ayahuasca journey taught me was, um, you know, you've got this life, you're going to, it's going to be full of ups and downs. And so obviously everyone loves the highs. But without the highs, you, you, without the lows, you don't have the highs, and and so and I'll quote Dolly Parton here. Who's, that documentary is good too. She's a bloody legend, and you don't get a rainbow without a little rain. I think it says, you know, and um, and it's just a, it's a simple line, and it's, it's spot on, you know. So the the motivational talks I do is called Chasing Rainbows, and and um, and I talk about all that stuff because it only comes through living. You don't get the highs without the lows, but you've got to be accepting of the lows and be aware that it's nothing's temp nothing's permanent everything's temporary so those lows will pass you just got to get through them and try and have a positive attitude through the lows and you know over my life i've been terrible at it because i didn't understand it but now I'm, i've got this beautiful understanding of gratitude to just, um, t- take it as it comes and my my dad was beautiful and my 40th birthday he wrote in a card and it's uh live laugh and love until your belly aches and take each day as it comes and you know and he passed away pretty soon after that and it's like such a, I'll never forget him sitting out just in basking in the sun, knowing he only had a couple of weeks left. And and it's true, you know, you just got to appreciate every second, um, even the downtime and, and accept that everything will pass. Nothing's permanent. We're all going to die. But as I said before, it's only one day and you don't know when, you don't know where, and you don't know how. So you just got to do your best to live your best life. Um, be kind, um, help others when you can, help yourself as well. So the better you help yourself, the better you can help others. And that's with, you know, mental health, emotional health, physical health. Um, and just try and live your best life and just be happy. And it's tough sometimes, especially in this day and age, and we just got to remember that. And I'm learning more and more a simple life is a happy life. So
0: beautiful. Well, for people listening, I'm sure they want to learn more about you. I know you obviously have a lot of your your uh, incredible extreme sports online. And, you know, for people listening, you're not just an extreme sports athlete. You're a world champion, or a record holder. So all this advice is coming from someone at the absolute pinnacle of their profession. So where are the best places online on social media to find you and follow you?
1: Yeah, I've had a break from social media. So, but um, on Instagram, I like pictures more than words. So um dougs base um, d-o-u-g-g-s b-a-s-e um youtube is chris dougs mcdougall so d-o-u-g-g-s and there's lots of old if you want to see the crazy stuff go back to the start of the youtube channel that's where all the crazy stuff is um the more recent stuff's all to do with the school and education and stuff and um yeah and check out my website Doug's dot com. Um, and I, i'm getting back into doing talks on risk management for companies and with my my version of it and how we mitigate risk um, with quite a visual presentation and real life hardcore experiences so every every lesson i've learned has been through a fatality and so so the risk management side of things and motivational speaking and just helping helping others get through life just like i've been getting through it and you know i'm very open and honest i've never I'm, not, I'm far from perfect, and I'm far from over learning. You know, so, so the journey I take people on is a, a journey, just like we've done today, and it's a it's an ongoing process. <laughs> yeah, and I'm about halfway through my life, hopefully. So. <laughs>
0: Well, I just want to say thank you. I mean, I, it blows me away. I just had a conversation um, this morning with one of the, the members of House of Pain, the the rap group.
1: Oh, wicked, and yeah. he has
0: this amazing story of fame and then addiction and homelessness and then rebirth. And, you know, and then here we are now, world champion, extreme sport, and we've gone all over the place. So there's so much takeaway as a human being. There's so many takeaways in the professions that are listening so I just want to thank you so much for being so generous, carving out you know a small part of the time where you're actually staying with Ryan at the moment. So I appreciate that. And just being generous with your time today.
1: Uh, absolute pleasure, mate. Super Superstar.